Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I started the first week of 2021 struggling to write a podcast script on political words, their meaning, how we use them. I reread parts of Ludwig Wittgenstein's work I remembered from my undergraduate days half a century ago. I had also written about Wittgenstein in my book, Emancipation, How Liberating Europe's Jews from the Ghetto Led to Revolution and Renaissance. No longer available in bookshops, sadly, but still available from online booksellers. Anyway, Wittgenstein spent his entire career trying to establish rules of meaning for language. In this, he was responding to the times. Wittgenstein lived in the first great age of mass media propaganda and watched the world into which he was born destroyed by it. Yet his words speak to our expanded age of mass media and propaganda. He concludes his first book, What We Cannot Speak About, We Must Pass Over in Silence. Well, good luck with that when you're anchoring a 24-hour news broadcast and have to act as if you have a priori knowledge of every news event unfurling on your screen. The meaning of the word is its use in the sentence is the key one for today. My podcast was going to be about what do we mean when we say conservative or liberal or left or right, communism, socialism, fascism in American politics or journalism anymore? but I couldn't make the ideas flow. I couldn't concentrate. I knew that the present in America was not finished yet with Donald Trump and this iteration of the Republican Party. Something would happen that would require a first rough draft to be written. On Wednesday, January 6th, that something took place. The Capitol building was assaulted by a mob incited by Trump, his lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and encouraged by the actions of several Republican legislators, including Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. The 24-hour TV news anchors struggled to find the words to describe what was going on, primarily because they, like all of us, weren't there, and they were just watching the images as they came in. Struggling to summarize, they used dramatic words. Revolution, coup, insurrection. For hours, they used the word protesters to describe the participants and what they were watching. When the first still photos of a bearded man in late middle age sitting at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's desk and of a half-dressed, face-painted young guy with a variety of Nazi and white supremacist tattoos on his body and a bizarre Indian headdress on came out, it was clear to me that my Wittgenstein research hadn't been in vain. I could still write about words and their meaning. What was happening was not a coup or an insurrection. This was simply, as I said, a mob convened by the president over Twitter and incited by him. There's another word you could use, and I will come to that in a few minutes. Stay with me. But first, I have been in mobs and riots. They were hard to avoid when covering Northern Ireland during the 1990s as the political process that would lead to the Good Friday Agreement unfolded. In the spring of 1998, after the politicians had negotiated the new settlement for the province, the people of Northern Ireland were given the final say in a referendum on the agreement. Northern Ireland had been my beat for NPR since the early 1990s, and I went over again to make a series of features about the campaign. 
Early one evening, I was sitting in my favorite Chinese restaurant in Belfast, possibly the only sit-down Chinese restaurant in the city, and some enthusiastic young adults came in passing out handbills, inviting customers to come to a riot. Not a protest, a riot planned by Protestants living in the Loyalist area of Sandy Row. I had my recording equipment with me, and as Belfast in those days was a pretty dull place at night, I decided to go. Nothing much else to do. I recorded the riot. The police thought me a little weird when I crouched down next to some tires that had been set on fire to record the crackling sound of flames as a sound effect. What the riot was about was hard to say. I think the rioters were actually in favor of the Good Friday Agreement because one of its key provisions was that paramilitaries serving time in prison for terrorist and other violent offenses would be released. Not just Catholics in the IRA, but Protestants, possibly members of the rioters' families in the Ulster Defense Association and other gangs whose initials start with U. This was more about the British state imposing something on them. It was all very confused. In the middle of it, I looked off to a side street and saw riot police in formation, ready to come in if the situation got out of control. An important lesson. In any riot, look for that line. Behind it is where you will find order and safety from the mob. Anyway, it was a highly ritualized event, and other than property damage, not much happened. I had excellent sound and was able to put together a nice scene piece for morning edition. A few nights later, I was in Ballymena at a meeting called by the Reverend Ian Paisley. He was resolutely against the agreement, and his congregation was as well. The meeting was in the auditorium of his Free Presbyterian Church. The church had no sound system because Paisley didn't need one. When he preached, he could be heard a mile away. But I needed to get good quality sound, and... I had to go all the way down to the pulpit and try to discreetly hold my shotgun microphone up. That was an impossible task. The place held several hundred, perhaps more, and it was packed. Paisley stirred them up against all the forces, ramming this terrible agreement down the throats of the good people of Ulster. The good people of Ulster will not stand for it. Among the things the good people of Ulster would not stand for was the media lying about them. Kneeling at his feet, I was the representative of media wickedness. He went on about us for a few minutes, whipping the crowd into a genuine frenzy. A Christian gentleman in the front row, about five feet away, said quite audibly, "'Kill him!' I turned to him, and he was looking at me like he genuinely meant it. Paisley must have heard him as well, because he smiled, made a there-there gesture with his hand, and reminded people of their Christian duty not to hate, and so on. But if he had wanted to, he could have egged that fellow on, and probably others, to violence against me. Early in my time in the North, I had met two men, Billy Hutchinson and David Irvine, who had done time in Long Cash Prison for paramilitary violence. Both hated Paisley with apostate passion. Both told me of listening to Paisley's incitements against Catholics, and particularly Irish Republicans, regularly as young men in the 1970s. They took his meaning and felt bitter when, in Hutchinson's case, having been incited to commit murder, they were condemned by Paisley. They knew what his talks, full of code words like the enemy trying to destroy your way of life, it's a life-and-death struggle, 
they knew what that really meant. I tell you these war stories because they help understand the riot at the Capitol. It was planned, and it was engaged in by people almost in a holiday spirit, like the riot on Sandy Row. It was incited by a rabble-rousing leader who could have, like Paisley, called them back from the brink. It was all for show. It was never going to change a thing. While I was watching the event unfold in real time, I was double-screening, online at Facebook and Twitter, posting comments, engaged with friends and strangers. It was like being on the safe side of the police line and chatting about a riot happening a few blocks away. An old friend and colleague who lives in Sarajevo reminded me via Facebook that an assault on the Bosnian parliament building after a national vote on independence from the Yugoslav Federation was an early step in Bosnia's descent into civil war. He was right, but there was a huge difference. Organization, support, and commitment. The Bosnian Serbs already had the weaponry and logistical help of the Yugoslav army behind them. Yugoslavia had fallen apart, and much of the army's guns and ammunition was in the hands of Belgrade, and the leader of this rump Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, had pledged it to the leaders of Bosnia's Serbs. Beyond that, there was a commitment to fighting, particularly in the Serb and Croat communities. While many in the capital mob might spout the rhetoric of violence, very few are willing to organize and commit to military discipline. After all, their leader, Donald Trump, avoided the military altogether, nor have they the courage and discipline to create an underground revolutionary movement like the IRA. Look closely at the pictures of those who briefly were inside the Senate chamber or Nancy Pelosi's office. The guys in their Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts and the six MWE t-shirts. It stands for six million weren't enough. They can on their day destroy property. They can in the night commit murder, but they fall far short of insurrectionists or revolutionaries. They were a mob, a blunt weapon used to foment a coup. Luckily for all of us, the men plotting the coup, Donald Trump and his not always sober friend Rudy Giuliani, are really very bad at their jobs. Trump genuinely thought that if he could delay the pro forma rubber stamping of the Electoral College, that somehow there would be some voting officials who would cave, unlike Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, and he could make a dramatic reversal of the vote. It was a fantasy tactic. It's been too easy for the Washington press to forget Trump's life and business. I don't think you can understand these last four years if you can't imagine being in a negotiation with him in a real estate deal whether for big things, like the price on a parcel of land, or small things, like suing him for payment for contract work, say, laying down carpet in one of his hotels. Every single negotiation goes past the wire. He uses the tactics he learned from his mentor, Roy Cohn. There is yelling, screaming, take-it-or-leave-it threats. All the while, he is stalling, waiting for one last out-of-the-blue piece of luck to tip the scale in his favor playing for time to get what he wants. Sometimes he wins. Most of the time, he loses. That's why he went bankrupt so many times. And in this game, he has lost again. So what do we call what happened on Wednesday? A coup d'etat? What does that mean? Was the military involved? A revolution. Trashing the capital does not a revolution make. Did the several thousand people who were part of the mob go underground? Or did they go 
as reported with pictures, to the Grand Hyatt Hotel to have a drink and a laugh about the vandalism they had committed. Revolutions and revolutionaries are made of sterner stuff. The best word to describe what happened was putsch. And to return to Wittgenstein and the meaning of the word as its use in a sentence, I mean putsch to conjure up the poorly planned event in a Munich beer hall in September 1923, where Hitler seized some opposition politicians and hoped to create momentum for a march to Berlin to seize the government. He failed and was imprisoned. But even putsch doesn't really reflect what happened on January 6th. Hitler led a party and worked hard at it. He didn't play golf every weekend. His followers were disciplined. They didn't show up in clown makeup wearing hats with buffalo horns to that beer cellar. Hitler was planning to take opposition politicians hostage, and that may have been the plan of the neo-Nazis, that's what they were, on Wednesday, but again, they didn't plan the way their idols in 1923 did. They had no chain of command. They had done no work. So maybe Putsch isn't the right word after all. Terrorism was another term thrown around on 24-hour news and Twitter. No doubt the legislators and reporters trapped by the mob felt terrorized, but the essence of terrorism is the element of surprise. The mob had been summoned to Washington by Trump for weeks. No surprise they behaved like one. When it comes to white supremacist terrorism, you think of Timothy McVeigh. He, too, was more organized than the mob and willing to do the hard work necessary to make a political point with violence. He was also willing to die. Dylan Roof, another white supremacist killer in his demented way, did the hard work of terrorism. These guys taking selfies and live-streaming themselves to their nearest and dearest are far, far from those two. Thank goodness. They were much more like the baying crowd you find at professional wrestling matches, to bring another of Trump's business connections into the discussion. This was an insurrection in the same way a pro-wrestling match is a true athletic contest. And to add one more of Trump's pre-presidency careers to the mix, reality TV. The live streaming from cell phones to friends and family as they rampaged through the Capitol, the look ma, I'm on TV-ness of the event. A reality show is not a revolution. Gil Scott Heron knew the revolution will not be televised. None of this is to downplay the American crisis. The forces that enabled Trump to remain in place, particularly in the media, Fox News and One America News and others, have been fomenting sedition for years now and getting away with it because seditious speech is protected under the First Amendment. So, now we can go back to Wittgenstein and use the clearest word to define what happened on Wednesday, January 6th. Sedition. We know what the word means, and there is a remedy for its propagation in mass media. The case of Brandenburg versus Ohio was where the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled seditious speech was protected under the First Amendment, unless the threat was imminent. The events of this week demonstrate we have passed imminence. The threat posed by the incitement on Fox News at all is like nature or God, imminent here and now, and the Supreme Court ruling must be applied. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit the website and make a donation, www.goldfarbpod.com. 
to help me keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.